Good morning, boys. Glad y'all are here. Good morning to you. I missed you last week and the week before. Hey, uh, at the end of our lesson three weeks ago, uh, one of you asked me, uh, and I thought I should take this up, uh, when David disobeyed the Lord with Bathsheba, uh, there was, of course, uh, discipline that was exercised uh, by the Lord on David. And part of that had to do with the death of his child. And one of you said, you know, I can understand how the Lord would punish or discipline David for his sin, but what about this child? Uh, why would this child have to bear the brunt of David's sin and lose its life, lose his life? Well, of course, we don't understand all these things, but I think the, the way to look at this is on two levels. First of all, we realize that all, no human being deserves anything except God's judgment because we are by nature sinners, including the children who are in our mother's wombs, uh, us. So from conception and birth, we do not have a right to claim uh, God's favor. There's nothing in us uh, that gives us that kind of right. We surrendered that at the Garden of Eden. So that's the first starting place when you're thinking through things. Be sure that you don't have an undue sense of entitlement for you, your children, grandchildren, or anybody else. Nobody deserves anything but God's judgment. Anything that we receive other than God's judgment is merely by His grace and mercy. That's the first starting point. But the second way to look at it is that there are consequences for succeeding generations from our behavior. There very seriously are consequences all the way to death. And you can look at our society where we're aborting a million children a year, and those children are losing their lives because of the sinful lifestyles of their parents. So there are certainly consequences that are coming upon whole generations because of the disobedience of their parents. You can see how alcoholism affects succeeding generations. You can see how uh, divorce or abandoning the home or other fatherly duties affects the succeeding generations. So I would say that as we look at the discipline that came upon David and the loss of his son, uh, that it's a really good reminder to us that our behavior counts, not just for us, but for several generations oftentimes, not just our children, but even our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. That's the reason often that when I'm talking to a man about his marriage or about his home, uh, and if I only have him in front of me and just the two of us are talking, it's almost as though the room is full of his children and I'm arguing on their behalf. So anytime that I'm uh, trying to plead with someone to get their life in order or to repent or to to love their wife, I feel like I'm pleading for, the, for their children and their grandchildren, for their sakes, that this man lead the life he ought to lead. Because I know, I've, seen, I've lived long enough to see generational longitudinal study and to see how, how uh, severely this affects the succeeding generations. It's one reason I'm so glad that we meet in here every Thursday morning. Because it's not just for your life, it's for the life of the people you manage in whatever businesses you're in. Is uh, for the lives of those that you parent and your grandchildren too. And it's very important for the men to realize we have um, more impact, far more impact than we even realize. So I would just say, yes, indeed, uh, our behavior can even bring about the death of a child uh, if we're not very careful. And in David's case, it did. Well, you know, of course, uh, what David did with Bathsheba. And turn back, if you will, to, to 2 Samuel 12. I want us just to review a, an important 
three verses here. Um, when Nathan rebukes David in chapter 12, look at verse 9. Let's remember this because it has everything to do with what David's going through now. In verse 9, uh, Nathan says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. So now turn to chapter 16. Let's pick up the story. Uh, You remember, of course, that uh, we've had tragedy after tragedy in David's household. Uh, Amnon could not seemingly resist the beautiful uh, appearance of his half-sister, and he rapes her. And then Tamar's brother, Absalom, finds a way eventually to wreak vengeance back on Amnon, kills him. And Absalom is in exile with his mother's family. So, of course, his dad is David. But his mother is from up in Gilead, and Absalom goes and stays with his grandparents. You you remember that? And Absalom then pleads with Joab to let him come back. And Joab helps Absalom come back to Jerusalem. And uh, and then he, as we have seen, uh, conspires against uh, David. And David then flees Jerusalem rather than defending Jerusalem. At the risk of having to take his own son's life, he flees Jerusalem with his mighty men and evacuates Jerusalem so that Absalom will not be killed and can take over the city, which he does. Now let's pick up the story with chapter 16 and we'll first of all read verses 1 through 14. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled bearing 200 loaves of bread and 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. And that his father, of course, would be Saul. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shimei, the son of Jerah. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men who were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, 
Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road, while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. Okay, when uh, things go bad and the lid comes off, you can just see that all kinds of evil often takes place. You know, you, you often see this when someone is, uh, is uh, publicly embarrassed or discredited. Then out of the woodwork come all these critics who say, oh yeah, I knew, he, you know, he had it coming to him. Da, da, da. And I remember he did this, and I remember, he, and all of a sudden just all comes out. That's what's happening to David. Uh, the lid came off under God's discipline, and now David's just facing all kinds of chaos. Now let's notice in these first 14 verses, our main point here is that we must humble ourselves when disciplined by the Lord. Even though it's very, very wicked, we must always be aware of God's hand upon us even when we're being disciplined, or especially when we're being disciplined. Leave your finger there and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. This would be page 2383. And let's just see what the writer of Hebrews says about this matter of discipline. He says, verse 3, chapter 12 of Hebrews, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. So let's just stop there for just a moment. Uh, Don't regard it lightly. Do not become weary when you're being disciplined. Sometimes you're not quite sure why chaos is breaking out against you. You're not quite sure why you're having to deal with so much evil that's coming at you. But gentlemen, it doesn't take a wild imagination on your part. Just scroll back a little bit and see many, many, many reasons in your life why God may be disciplining you. You can look at your present life, some of your attitudes, uh, some of your lust, some of your pride, some of your greed. And it doesn't take a wild imagination to figure out why God may be using evil against you to humble you and discipline you. And the writer of Hebrews says, do not take this lightly because he chastises everybody he loves. So if you're a son of the Lord, just like a good father in uh, human terms, God is a 
best fa- he is the best father and he's going to discipline you at times. Are you beyond being disciplined? Do you not do things or think things or say things that deserve to be disciplined? Do you not need to be humbled? And God will use evil in your life in order to discipline you. So the author here is just citing for us an Old Testament text to say this has always been the case. Then look at verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children. You're a bastard and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So whenever these things come, We don't know like David does. David happens to know there's a one-to-one relationship between something he did and what's going on right now in his life. He's been given that by revelation. We just read it in chapter 12. We don't always know that one-to-one relationship. Sometimes we can speculate, but we don't always know for sure. But what we do know for sure is that God is our Heavenly Father. He controls everything in the universe, and He controls it for our good, including evil that's perpetrated against us. And so we're going to see with David in just a moment how he becomes very aware of this disciplinary moment in his life, and that's what enables him to walk through it in some manner of righteousness. Now notice, first of all, in verses 1 through 4, that we have to be careful concerning rash judgments. Have to be careful concerning rash judgments. David was on the fly. He was leaving Jerusalem. He was in need of allies and supplies. And so when Ziba brought him these supplies, he was very grateful. And he was ready to accept Ziba's testimony. But frankly, this was a mistake. Ziba was being highly manipulative. We find out later in chapter 19, when Mephibosheth comes back to David and gives his own account of what happened, it appears as though Ziba was not telling the truth here. The Ziba was being completely manipulative. He comes out to David while he leaves, gives him some significant gifts, tells him that he's been betrayed by Mephibosheth, whom David had shown favor to, you know, because of, of Mephibosheth's father was Jonathan, David's best friend. So David keeps the covenant with Jonathan by favoring Mephibosheth. Now Ziba rats out Mephibosheth and lies about him. And so you can see what Ziba's doing. It's highly manipulative. He's not leaving Jerusalem. He's not going with David. He's not siding with David. He's not paying the price. He's just trying to schmooze David. And he's going to stay there. He's, remember, he was a former servant of Saul. So he's going to stay there in Jerusalem. When Absalom comes in, Ziba can act like, oh, well, Absalom, I'm glad you're the king. It's kind of like somebody who gives big gifts to both political parties. You know, you don't care who wins, but whoever wins, you want them to know you're on their, you're on their side. And Ziba's playing the odds here. He's going to go flatter David, and then he's going to stay and be able to enjoy whatever Absalom brings. And then if Absalom gets defeated, well, Ziba was, you know, David, you know, I was on your side. It's just that kind of behavior. And David 
doesn't catch it. And David gets manipulated. And he says to Ziba, when Ziba says, Mephibosheth said, well, it's about time that uh, my grandfather's kingdom, Saul, or my father's kingdom, Jonathan's restored. When David, when Ziba said that, David believed it and then said to Ziba, the, the, the property that I gave to Mephibosheth is now back yours again. It's all yours. So you just take it. Just confiscate it. So be very careful when you're under trial and you're looking for anybody who will do any favors for you and help you out, that you not get manipulated. You have to be a man of principle. This is the most important time to be a man of principle is when you're under trial, when you're under discipline, when things aren't going so well. Everything has to be, uh, every decision has to be made according to God's Word. Every decision has to be made in uh, terms of what's right and wrong, not just what's uh, useful for you. And if you're not very careful, you can be manipulated uh, during times when you're down. That's one thing you have to watch out for. So be careful concerning rash judgments. Now, in verses 5 through 14, of course, you have this very interesting case with Shimei. And here we learn, be careful to consider God's providence. The very main thing we're talking about. That God does discipline His sons, that He uses other people at times. And even though Shimei, obviously... Uh, he has, he's a descendant of Saul's family. He's a Benjaminite. So he, he has been resentful all these years that David has come in and taken the kingdom away from a son of Benjamin, Saul. And Shimei has been toasting over this for years. And now that David's down, he's just releasing all of his personal anger. He's obviously violating the word of God. Exodus twenty two twenty eight tells us never to curse the king. And David himself, you know, never cursed Saul. He never laid hands on the Lord's anointed. He was very careful about God's providence in appointing the kings. And some people in our day need to be just as careful about what they say about our presidents when we have a president who's not in their favor. Uh, And uh, David was very careful about authorities in life and not laying hands on the Lord's anointed. That doesn't mean that in a democratic society we don't have good arguments and disagreements and all the rest. It's the respect uh, for the man who fulfills an office that uh, God has put in place. Uh, but here David is very aware. You can see it in the text. He's very aware of what the Lord is doing with him. And he says, David, he's, David says, and God has been the one who has told Shimei to say this. Now that gives Shimei no excuse. Uh, but Shimei, because Shimei is throwing dirt and cursing the king, he deserves to die. And the sons of Zeruiah probably are right. Let us take his head off. But David says something very interesting, and I want to suggest that maybe the text is, um, could be interpreted another way in verse 12, where it says, It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me. Wrong done to me. Um, you know, the, we have the Hebrew Bible, and uh, we have manuscripts that go back a certain distance, uh, Hebrew manuscripts. But then you remember in the 2nd century and 1st century B.C., this Hebrew text was translated into Greek because the Greeks had taken over Jerusalem, and it became a Greek-speaking, you know, the, the, the uh, trade language was Greek. And so they translate the Bible into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. 
The Septuagint translated this Hebrew phrase in such a way that the English rendition here is reflective of the Greek. But the actual original Hebrew translations uh, uh, or versions simply say, my iniquity. So let me read it the way that the... And it could be translated several different ways. So I'm just saying there are different ways to look at it. But the, the scholars I've checked on this think that maybe the Hebrew original is, uh, should be taken in play here. Often, when, when you get the English translation of the Old Testament, it's very much influenced by this Greek version. So if the Greek translated the Hebrew in a certain way, usually the English will go with the Greek. Because these folks who translated into Greek are closer to the Hebrew culture than we are. And so we trust that when they were translating into Greek, they got the Hebrew right. But here is maybe a case where there's an argument. And I think maybe the scholars are right here to read verse 12 this way. It may be that the Lord will look on my iniquity and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. And here's the point. David is saying that even though the Lord is looking on his iniquity, the Lord is going to repay him good for the cursing that's coming. In other words, it's a statement about grace. And, and, and uh, instead of talking about the wrong done to me, it's just the opposite. It's the wrong that David did. So David is trusting that even though his father is looking on the wrong that David did and the curse that he deserves, that he still trusts God to do good for him. Now, gentlemen, this, this is a deep faith. It's the kind of faith we want to have. Yes, we can... We do submit ourselves to the discipline of the Lord. We agree that we need it, and for sure we deserve it. But we know God well enough to know, you know, He's a good and gracious God. He's gracious to sinners, knucklehead sinners like me, who do stuff over and over again. And I'm going to trust Him not only to discipline me, but I'm going to trust Him to discipline me and bring good upon me. So cheer up. God is a gracious God. This is not based on your performance. It's based on His grace. And I think that's exactly what David's experiencing. And it's that expectation of God's grace in his life that enables him to submit to the discipline. That enables him to to take on the dirt clods and the stones and the cursing. To humble himself under it. Because he knows that good is coming in the end. So remember who you are and how the Lord thinks about you and what He plans to do with you. And then you go through these valley times just realizing these are temporary moments. And these are moments just shaping me. And these are moments that are actually good for me. But this is not my uh, long-term condition. God is going to be favorable to me. And I think that's what David was saying here. Now let's look at verses 15 all the way through chapter 18, verse 4. And we'll move into another major thought here in our text. Verse 15, Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? 
Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Now you remember that uh, Hushai was sent by David to cancel the counsel of Ahithophel. And now you can see in this text, uh, Hushai is having to prove to Absalom that he will be faithful to Absalom. Oh, there's all kinds of intrigue going on uh, in this text. Verse 20, Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged, and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Let's actually stop right there. And I want you to notice in this whole next section, 1615 through 184, that we must trust the Lord to deliver us. We must trust the Lord to deliver us. David is now way over his head. Uh, David was a great warrior. He certainly was pretty good with a slingshot. He was very bold. But the main thing David had was trusting in the Lord. Let the Lord win the battle. This thing has gotten way out of control. And there's not anything David can really humanly do about it. Sometimes our families are like that. We can look back on our lives and say, you know, I really screwed up, really messed up. Look at all this mess I've got. It's out of my control. I can't do anything about it. You can trust the Lord. You can pray to Him. You can trust Him. You can walk with Him. You can submit to Him. You can humble yourselves. You can do all kinds of things. Take the moment you have. Instead of just uh, grieving past moments, take this moment and submit yourself to it. That's what David uh, is going to have to do because the verses we just read, 16.15 through 17.4, we see here that sometimes things look hopeless. Sometimes things look hopeless. Ahithophel, Ralph Davis says in his commentary, is the Judas of the Old Testament. Ahithophel has been David's trusted consultant and counselor. And now he betrays David and goes with Absalom and is giving Absalom wickedly good advice. Uh, He is very dangerous. And with Ahithophel's competent counsel and Absalom's conquest of the city, things look now impossible. And the fulfillment of the prophecy of Nathan is, is now happening. As Nathan said, your concubines will you know, be taken to a public place in front of the sun, under the sun, and everybody will see in the light of day that your concubines are having sex with another man. And sure enough, here it is. It's exactly what Absalom's doing. And, you know, when a dynasty passed down the harem of the dynasty, typically 
in the ancient Near East passed down to the next king. He didn't always have sex with them. Sometimes they just lived in isolation. But it was his harem. Well, what Absalom is doing is claiming, this is my harem now. And then he completely offends and insults everything about David. So that everybody in the kingdom now knows all the bridges are burned. Absalom has declared himself. He's made himself odious in the sight of David. You've got to make a choice. You're either going to be on Absalom's side or David's side because Absalom and David have no possibility of reconciliation. Look what Absalom just did. So Ahithophel was giving him incredibly astute political and military advice. And, and, and Absalom was taking his advice. So things look very, very grim. And yet, what do we do when things are very, very grim? We look to the Lord, even when things look hopeless. Now let's pick up with verse 5. And here, through 18.4, we're going to see that even though things look hopeless oftentimes, all things are possible with God. All things are possible with God. Now you just look and see what God does here. It's absolutely astonishing. David, David has just lost it all. He's completely out of control. Let's see what the Lord does, 17.5. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. Why in the world did Absalom do that? Well, we'll come back to that. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken, shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged, like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, There has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant men, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear, for all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba, as the sand by the sea for multitude, and then you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it to the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. Then Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Now look at this. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Let's just stop there for a moment. Would you notice Ahithophel had given Absalom incredibly discerning advice. David now is down. He is weary. He's at the riverside. Go get him right now. Don't kill anybody else. Just kill David. And you'll win the hearts of everybody else. Pursue him immediately while he's down and exposed and vulnerable. That was outstanding advice. Militarily. It was wicked, but it was, it was, it was shrewd. For some reason, 
Absalom not only asks for Hushai's advice, but he tells Hushai initially what Ahithophel had already told him so that Hushai now knows how to counter the advice that Ahithophel had given him. I mean, you know, Absalom obviously is a very foolish young man, but God was working to allow Hushai to make an argument. Notice how Hushai very carefully makes his argument. Ahithophel's wisdom was legendary. Everybody knew that Ahithophel was a great counselor. So Hushai put it, if you look back in, in uh, verse uh, 7, you'll see how he very carefully words it. This time, he says, the counsel of Ahithophel is not good. Normally, he's saying, Ahithophel gives great counsel. I respect Ahithophel. I think he's a great guy. But this is one of those rare exceptions, you know, Hushai is saying, where I think he's missed it. And then Hushai just tells a lie. And you're for the sake of warfare. And all is fair in love and war, as they say. And that's never an excuse for us to go telling rampant lies. But here Hushai is used by the Lord to lead Absalom to another conclusion. And Hushai says, you know your dad. He'll be as mad as a hornet. He'll be as enraged as a bear. And he's going to hide in caves. David wasn't hiding in caves. He was protecting the women and children. But he says he'll hide in caves. And then you won't be able to find him. And then he'll destroy uh, so many of your men that everybody will get discouraged. So I suggest, he says, that you muster a bunch of men. Get them all together. And then go out and have a massive battle against David. Just bide your time. Wait until you muster your forces. So these people believed Hushai and his advice. They thought it was great that it was superior to Ahithophel. Why? Well, look at, again at verse 14. This is the key. The Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Gentlemen, remember that even when you're under the discipline of the Lord, He controls the outcome. If you're under the discipline of the Lord or you're in a tough time, you think you can pick out how this thing's going to come out. But you can't. The Lord is in charge of history. and He can do whatever He wants to do. And He's going to bring out of this both the discipline of His son David and the judgment upon Absalom the rebel. He's going to accomplish both of those things. It's just like when He uses the Chaldeans, the bloodthirsty, wicked Chaldeans, to conquer Jerusalem viciously, violently, and take them into exile. And Habakkuk, the prophet, is saying, Lord, would you please explain this? I mean, I know we're bad, but the Chaldeans, you're going to have them defeat us? They're worse than we are. Well, notice what God does. He does use the wicked Chaldeans to take His people into exile, and then He judges the Chaldeans by the Persians. So hang on. God's not through with this story yet. He's going to accomplish all that He has in mind to do. But it is amazing here. You can see from the extraordinary nuances of this story that God is clearly in charge of it. He's turning Absalom's mind so that he gets the advice, tells Hushai what Ahithophel said, and then everybody's convinced. Go figure. Well, here's here's the math. It's called God. He's the one controlling everything. Pick up the story again with verse 15. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. 
Now, therefore, sing quickly and tell David, Do not stay tonight at the forge of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were waiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Bahurim, who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimeaz and Jonathan? These are the priests and priest's sons. And the woman said to them, They have gone over to the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has the Hithophel counsel against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan by daybreak, no one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. So David had traveled 21 miles down 3,500 feet from Jerusalem down to the Jordan River. Now when he gets the word that, that Absalom's going to muster a big army, David now travels 37 more miles, largely on foot, with all these people he's protecting, and makes his way up to the hills of Gilead up in Jordan. Okay? When Ahithophel saw that his counsel... Um, was not followed. This is verse 23. He saddled his donkey, went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. So once again, you can see it's a very uh, similar story to that of Judas. Judas betrayed the Lord, saw the futility of it. For whatever reason, he hanged himself. Here, Ahithophel does the same thing. You know, when Absalom didn't take his advice, Ahithophel knew he was cooked, and he goes and hangs himself. So judgment upon Ahithophel, the Judas of the Lord's anointed. Then David came to Mahanaim, in verse 24, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobai, the son of Nahash from Rabah of the Ammonites, and Maker, the son of Amel from Lodabar, and Barzillai the Gileadite from Rogalim, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, uh, parched grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds, and sheep and cheese from the herd, for David and the people with him to eat, for they said, The people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. Let's stop right there. Now, back up. We've seen that all things are possible with God. Now, let's look at some of the details. Number one, he frustrates our enemies. 
He frustrates our enemies, verses 5 through 23. That's the section we've just been discussing. That he frustrates Absalom. He frustrates Ahithophel. uh, He frustrates all of those who seek ultimately for our destruction. We're the people of the Lord. We're the anointed of God. So yes, we come under discipline because we, like David, sin and have to be humbled, have to be disciplined. We have to be trained under the discipline of our Father. But anybody who tries to lay a hand on to us to destroy us, God will completely frustrate them. And you can count on that. You belong to the Lord. So you're not going to be completely destroyed. Hang in there. So he raises up, uh, he frustrates our enemies. And secondly, he raises up friends. And you can see that in verse 24 uh, in the way that uh, uh, David was helped massively uh, by Shobai, the son of Nahash, uh, by Maker, by Barzillai, who happened to be a very wealthy man. We know that Barzillai was what they call a great man in Hebrew. Uh, that meant he was either large physically or very wealthy. In Barzillai's case, he happened to be very wealthy. And he brings all these supplies. Look at that. So God will raise up friends for us and He'll raise up provisions for us uh, that we may not be destroyed. And you can just... You know, when you're, when you're in discipline or when things are going very negatively for you, look around and see. Be sure to keep your eyes open to what the Lord is doing. You know, wherever there's a temptation or wherever there's a problem, uh, for God's people, there's always a way of escape. There's always a way that pleases Him. There's always a way that glorifies Him and also uh, preserves us. You look for those ways. There's, there's something there. And it's meant to honor and glorify Him. And here David gets friends and he gets supplies. And also notice in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 18, he gets partners, Joab, Abishai, Ittai, and they understand David's greatness. They understand who David is. They understand that David is the Lord's anointed. And they say to him, look, we can flee, and they don't care. They just want you. You're worth 10,000 of us. They understand David's value. He's the king. And God will provide for you in His fellowship Men who understand who you are. You're one of His. And they understand how valuable you are. And they're going to come around you because of who you are in Christ. And that's the kind of partnership that David had, even with all of his sin and screwing up and all the mistakes that he made with his family and all the rest. uh, God did not abandon David. And that's the way that He deals with you. And of course, that's the way He dealt with the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, be aware not only that you are humbling yourself when disciplined by the Lord, but be aware that you can trust Him to deliver you. Now, you, you have to ask the question in your small groups. I hope you'll discuss this. How is it that the Lord delivers us? Is it that He delivers us from every physical infirmity? Does He deliver me from my cancer? Well, sometimes He does, sometimes He doesn't. But, it, but what He does deliver me from is anything that ultimately destroys me. And you have to have an eternal perspective to see this. You may either see shadows of it now in this life of His mercy and His preserving grace, but you're for sure going to see it in the end. As you walk faithfully with Him and you get to the end, you will see that everything that He's been doing in this life has been good for you. He's been shaping you and molding you. Sometimes you don't see it in this life. You'll see it in the next one. And you, we as followers of Christ are people who embrace eternity. We do not demand that everything makes sense in this life. If you do that, you've surrendered your heritage. Your heritage is eternal life. 
And therefore, you have a new perspective. And you're able to wait patiently for the Lord's deliverance. And David is having to wait here. For the meanwhile, stick with what you know in the midst of your discipline. And let the Lord take it out uh, in, in the end of the time, which we shall see happens with David even in this life and often happens in this life with us as well. Now let's look at uh, chapter 18, verse 5, and pick up there and read through verse 8 of 19. This is the last section. And here, let me go ahead and give you the heading. We must reestablish godly loyalties. We must reestablish godly loyalties because we'll see that it was mistaken loyalties that got David in this mess in the first place, and now he's going to have to deal with this. So in your discipline and in your restoration, uh, the Lord, His whole purpose with you in time is to help you uh, repent and help you and me get right with Him and learn what we need to learn. And we'll see that David's having to do that here. So pick it up with verse 5. The king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. Let's just um, stop right there for just a moment. And A, under A, we are sometimes slow to learn. And the point I want us to notice in verse 5 is that our misplaced loyalties cause the problems in the first place. And here, David's making the same dang mistake again. The very problem that got him into this trouble with Absalom, the fact that he wasn't disciplining Absalom from the very beginning, he didn't, didn't discipline uh, Amnon, he didn't discipline his family. We've seen his family falling apart these last two lessons. And it's because David was, for whatever reason, he was more committed to peace humanly, temporally with his children than he was righteousness in his family. He was more committed to his family than he was to God. Here he goes again. Deal gently with Absalom. Deal gently with Absalom? Absalom has threatened the life of everybody in David's family and all of his army. Absalom is out to destroy them. Deal gently with Absalom. What a statement. That's damnably stupid. And it's coming out of this fathering that for whatever reason, sometimes men who... uh, Frankly, you know, we don't do a real good job rearing our kids. And then we feel guilty about it. And then we have this false reaction of being overly loyal to them or giving them a huge inheritance that destroys their lives or some other stupid thing because we're feeling guilty. I don't know if it was David's guilt or just David's sentimentality that he couldn't get a handle on because, you know, David was a wonderful musician. He was a wonderful poet. He had a very artistic heart. Sometimes if you have an artistic Outlook, sometimes you tend to be a little bit more sentimental. Maybe that was David's problem. I don't know. But here's your son who has kicked out the whole kingdom, has rebelled against God and his anointed. Be gentle with him? David has not learned his lesson. So let's notice the very beginning, this is why David's under discipline. This family dysfunction. He's, he has a lustful uh, uh, affair with Bathsheba. And now he's not able to discipline his children. His children, are, his children are ruining his life. His children are telling him what to do. And he has no 
backbone with his children for whatever reason. I don't know. But it's wicked, as we shall see. Let's keep reading after verse 5. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. See, David had taken them up into the forest of Ephraim where they would get lost. We're going to have to race through. Basically, what happens is uh, Absalom eventually... His beautiful hair. Absalom had great hair. Well, guess what? He got his hair caught up in a tree. And Absalom was hanging there by his hair, by his head, in a tree. Everybody heard David say, be gentle with him. Nobody would kill him. But Joab would. You know Joab. And he goes up and he says, you guys take his life. Whoop, he was gone. David eventually gets the message. Let's just race on forward to, toward the end of chapter 7. Uh, look at verse uh, 31. And behold, the Cushite game. This is the messenger. And the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Once again, how outrageous. Absalom has opposed the entire army of God, has opposed God himself. And all you're concerned about, David, is how's my son Absalom? David's more committed to his son than he is the nation. It's unbelievable. And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Okay. Uh, then it was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are shamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried out with a loud voice, My son Absalom, oh Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. For you've made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you'd be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king rose and took his seat in the gate and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. All right. We are sometimes slow to learn. Our misplaced loyalties cause the problem in the first place. And secondly, we fail to see God's justice and mercy. When you're in a self-pity party and you're more committed to your family than you are to God and His kingdom and you're all torn up over your misfortune, you can't see what God's doing. You're blind by your own self-pity. Notice B in, verse 9, in chapter 19. Eventually we get it. Because in verses 1 through 6, we see that our self-pity obscures our duties. You've today covered the shame, covered with shame the faces of all your servants. You've completely dissed everybody who's committed to the Lord, everybody who's committed to you as leader, everybody who's committed to the nation of Israel. You've shamed us all because you've made us feel as though we're guilty for taking your son's life who happened to oppose God. It's amazing how, how men will sometimes just take the place of their family members without judgment or discernment. 
And when you decide you're going to be more committed to your family than you are to God and His kingdom, you're going to lose your vision for justice and mercy by God. You have to be, even in some ways, independent of your closest friends and family and realize there's something bigger than your family going on. Yes, we're responsible for our families. David has shown us that. But we're more responsible with the family of God. Eventually we get it. Our self-pity obscures our duties, but our repentance restores our usefulness. And here you'll see, even though slowly, without a whole lot of enthusiasm, David goes out to the gate where he's supposed to go to review the troops and show his appreciation for their sacrifice. David rises up and does his duty to lead the kingdom of God. And sometimes you're leading the kingdom of God uh, does mean you have to oppose your own family and oppose your own friends at times. And David had just completely lost, for whatever reason, in the uh, obscurity of, of God's uh, truth in his confusion in his family. For whatever reason, David had lost it. But notice, God's at work. And he takes this man with all of his problems and all of his faults and all of his weaknesses and he's sitting right back in the gate and he's doing his job. Look, the Lord loves you too. And he's working with you. And even when you're disciplined, you don't even, even then get everything you're supposed to get out of the discipline and the Lord has to confront you again. But he gets you right back where he wants you as his son, advancing his kingdom. That's what he promised us to do for us. Our salvation is absolutely beautiful. And you see it here in the life of David, who obviously doesn't deserve any of God's favor, but David has it all. And so do you in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the lessons that we learn in your word, for the encouragement that we receive, and we pray also that we this morning may be ready to submit ourselves to whatever discipline you bring us from time to time, And that in that discipline, you'll help us to focus our eyes upon you so that we trust you to lead us through this moment in our lives. And then, Lord, help us to hear and listen carefully so that we do not get absorbed in our own sorrows, but rather take the responsibility to lead through the moment that you've given us, just as you did with David. And Lord, we especially thank you for Jesus Christ who came to bear all of these burdens for us, who faithfully trusted you through every circumstance, even on the cross, when he committed himself to you and his spirit to you, knowing that you would raise him up in three days. Lord, give us the same faith and build in us the same character that we may walk with you all of our days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.